Let me ask if I could begin with a question. When God's people seem in such an irreversibly hopeless situation, what do we do? Let me give you an idea of, you know, the context in which we live in. You know, the the idea at the moment is is very much that someone's personal and individual freedom, that's kind of the highest authority in our culture and our land at the moment, isn't it? And what does that do to us as Christians if we're a Christian here today? It it somewhat pushes us aside. It it gives people complete freedom to say, oh, well, you're talking rubbish. We can be mocked. We can be ostracized. But when our culture is moving so quickly in that kind of direction, how do we live? And where do we put our hope? In the times that 1 Samuel was written, there was a very similar cultural context, cultural kind of malaise. The context is probably best spelled out. Why don't you just turn back a couple of books to the end of the book of Judges, page 266. You'll notice, well, we looked at Judges last year. And you'll see from the last verse of the book of Judges. The idea of what was going on at the time. Historically, the two books follow each other chronologically. And uh, we'll see here, so just if you're not used to Bible things, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, the small small numbers are the verse numbers. So we're in Judges 21, verse 25. And it simply says, In those days Israel, God's people, had no king. And everyone did as he saw fit. Perhaps... You know, people were just doing anything that pleased them. They didn't look to anyone or anyone else's wisdom on how to live, how to make decisions. It simply, if it felt right, they did it. Sounds quite familiar, doesn't it, in the culture in which we live. The problem was that it, it had led Israel probably into its darkest days. If you remember last year, we looked at those last four chapters of Judges, and I only did it in one week because they're so dark. They're so horrible, many scholars would agree, they're probably the darkest times for the whole of Israel in the Old Testament. And so as we've looked through 1 Samuel over these last few months, this is the context. This is what it looks like on the ground for the people. Israel had no king. There's this perceived leadership vacuum. And people were just, well, we'll do as they please. And it was pretty chaotic if you look at the last four chapters of Judges. But the real problem, the real problem in that situation was that people didn't recognise God was their king. Leadership had always been there via God, coming through his prophets, through his judgment leaders. Uh, But the people had chosen to ignore that. God had lovingly directed and protected his people over generations, but they were pushing him aside. Their lack of obedience... Also, their insecurity as they saw other nations around them, especially on the kind of the eastern side with the Philistines building up. It was the, the changing of an era we get from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. And the Philistines, they'd gone a bit quicker and they had their iron chariots and they were looking pretty, pretty hefty. It was scary. And what did the people of God do? They said they turned to God and to Samuel and, uh, and they said, well, we need a change of leadership. We need something else because look at those guys over there. And therefore, as Ash pointed out earlier, we get to chapter 8 and the people, they request a king. To just be like the other nations. The scary guys over there. And that is a real turning point in this whole book in chapter 8. Where they request a king. But let me say, I think it's probably the motivation behind the request 
This is the real heart of the book. The people didn't trust God's rule. And therefore, whose rule and whose word are they going to trust is kind of, that, that's the big issue within the whole letter. I've put down on your, uh, on your outlines, you'll see there whose rule, whose word. And I've put option one, two and three. Because the both, letter, both books, one Samuel and two Samuel, well actually one, they were one book in the original, uh, called one, and sometimes later they were called one and two kingdoms. But here... The, the, the same kind of options go through both books. Option one is there's no rule. There's self-rule, essentially, as we see at the end of the book of Judges. Option two is, well, we're going to turn, like they do in chapter 8, to a human king. And option three is to trust God as king. Uh, through, through in his word, through his prophets, and through his judges. Option one, self-rule. Option two, human king. Option three, God as king. And what we see through both books, actually, is this sequence from option one to option two to option three. But the problem is, they keep going back to option two. 1 Samuel actually begins very positively. Do you remember the birth of Samuel? You get the song of Hannah. It's a very positive start. Samuel's the last judge in a line of judges that began with Moses, and you get the famous ones of Gideon and Samson, you probably remember them. But Samuel's ministry, certainly those opening eight chapters, nine chapters, it's centered around, well, hearing, speaking, and obeying God's word. And he sets the theme very positively at the beginning. Samuel may have his name on the book, but he's not the central character, though, human character. 1 Samuel is the record of God's people rejecting God and his word. And and as we've heard, requesting this other rule. And they get that, don't they? They get the anointed one, the king, Saul. And that is the life, if you like, that that is mapped out in its entirety throughout this book. He's the the main character, if you like. And so let's just quickly run through some of... The, you know, Saul's life. Just so you can remember it, we've gone through each of these chapters I'm going to mention now. So you get a kind of broad outline before we get to his end in chapter 31. So just think back. If you want to turn to them or we write these um, passages down and have a look later, you're more than welcome. So you'll remember in chapter 10 where Saul is anointed as God's king. Literally there, he's the anointed one. And in the Hebrew, that is the Messiah. Okay? We know, where that come, we know where we've seen that again. In the Greek, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament Septuagint, he would be called the Christ. Messiah, Christ, same words. But as we've seen, the history of the first Christ Messiah, that is Saul, we've seen again, week in, week out, haven't we? That we long for the ultimate Christ Messiah. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, there are high points in Saul's reign. Do you remember chapter 11, where he wins a great victory over the Ammonites? Now, I want you to clock that. If you've been a little bit tired, because it's quite warm in here, isn't it? I know we've got every window open. Clock that. Chapter 11, victory over the Ammonites. We'll come to that later. But Saul, he's outwardly everything the people wanted. Victorious in battle against the Ammonites in chapter 11. Chapter 9, verse 2, for example, tells us that he's a really impressive man. A head taller than all the others. So the point there is that Saul looks the part. 
he had, you know, the people had their kind of pin-up king. The fact that he's a head taller than everyone else is repeated by the, the writer, actually, in chapter 10. And you kind of think, it's a, it's a funny, all the commentators say, he seems to be sort of like a bit showing off about their king at this stage. You know, he's like, well, hey, look at our guy, he's really good. Chapter 10, verse 23. He's an outwardly impressive man. But after chapter 11, it's a bit of a downfall. It's a very slippery slope. And that continues then on for the next 40 years. Until we see in chapter 31 of Mount Geboa. So Saul was impressive to others. But hear this, because this is so important. His biggest problem was that he was impressive to himself. And therefore, because of his own enlarged ego, he had a tendency, well, we've seen it again and again, to shape God's word. To say, oh, I know what you've said, God, about this, and that, but I'm going to just... You're not that serious about that. I'm just going to change it to how I want to, because I'm the great king, the anointed one, the Messiah. It's a classic self-deception, really. In chapter 13, he disobeyed Samuel's instruction to wait regarding a sacrifice. And the fact that he continued may just seem a small, kind of a trifling of God's word, really. But in ignoring God and ignoring Samuel, he, he shows that he just trusted his own wisdom over and above God's wisdom. And as a result, in chapter 13, verse 14, if you want to have a look at that, chapter 13, verse 14, Samuel declares to him, it's, it's a very sobering verse, that Saul's kingdom will not endure, he says, and he, I'll read on, he says, the Lord has sought a man after his own heart, God's heart, and appointed him leader of his people. He's speaking of David there, of course. But you've not kept the Lord, because you have not kept the Lord's command. Very sobering. And then you get to chapter 15. Saul once again disobeys God's clear command. And you get to chapter 15, verse 30. And it hits him. He's, he's caught out. And, but even in that verse, if you want to look at it, you can. But I'll read it to you in a moment. You see his heart. He says, I've sinned. I've been caught. But then he says... Please honour me before the elders of my, of my people and before Israel. See, still then, Saul having been caught out, uh, he's more concerned about what the people think, what the powerful elders think, rather than what God thinks. His heart was not for the Lord. It was for his own reputation. He's not fit to lead God's people. Now, of course, it, it gets so much worse, doesn't it? In the last few weeks, as we looked at his life, he's so passionate to get rid of King, uh, the, the King David, promised anointed one. In chapter 22, he, he orders an Edenite, pays for an Edenite, to kill all the priests of the Lord because one had kind of entrusted himself to David. And then we got two weeks ago to chapter 28, and it's like at the lowest point, it seems... He consults a medium. He travels to this place called Endor, risking his life to go around the Philistines as they camped on the plains of Eshteron. And he finds this woman because he's got this deafening silence from God that was haunting him. And the only place he could turn at that point was a witch. Could it get any more desperate? Yes. And that's what we see in this last chapter, isn't it? Do you remember I said at the beginning, yeah, when, people, when God's people seem in such an irreversibly hopeless situation, what do we do? How do we live? Where do we put our hope? Well, I think this final chapter gives us some options. 
And I guess our prayer ought to be that we respond appropriately as we see both Jonathan and David and how they respond in an irreversibly hopeless situation. Look at verse 1 of chapter 31. We're there now. We're going to go through it now and we'll make some concluding points at the end. Verse 1, it's a... It's a bloody synopsis, really, isn't it, of a situation. Look at it. Uh, now the Philistines fought against Israel. Uh, the Israelites fled before them, and many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. I put on your outlines just, just the obvious point of verse 1. Many fell slain. The interesting thing is, that is a, not a very accurate reading of that verse. It's a poor translation, in a sense, because what the writer is actually doing is is bringing us into the action of a fight that's already going on. It's it's written, actually, in a present continuous tense. It's happening. The fight's going on. In some ways, it'd be like a writer sort of saying, oh, you know, this is going on over here, and I'm going to bring you in, like the newsreaders do. You know, I'll bring you over to this story. This is the big news story at the moment. The writer knows what he's doing. Chronologically, the event follows from chapter 28, but in a sense, it's too painful for him to go from chapter 28 to 31. So he makes a two-chapter detour to show him the delights of David being delivered. It's very contrasting, but now it's, I get a sense of me watching the tennis with Sue Barker, you know, Wimbledon. It's like, you know, something really interesting is going on in chapter one. You know, Murray's about to win or lose or something like that. And they've been watching on Senate Court and she goes, and now we're going to take you over to court one. It's a bit like that here. And now we're going to go over to join the battle at Mount Geboa. But it is such a tragic episode, isn't it? It's already happening, but the writer is just, oh, I'm going to try and put this off and I've, oh, I'm running out of paper. I better, I better slip this on at the end. Verse, verse 1 is a, is a potted and painful summary. In a sense, it's like the, the tennis guy's going, yeah, Murray is out at the beginning of the program. Murray's out. And then the rest of the program kind of analyzes how and why and looking at all the, you know, oh, it landed here and so on. David has enjoyed a double deliverance in the previous two chapters. Chapter 29 at Afek and chapter 30 at Ziklag. The sad contrast when we get to verse 30, chapter 31 is simply that there's no deliverance for Saul. All we can do is examine the dead, which is what we're going to do. I wonder how they'll be remembered. I wonder what few words will be on their tombstones. And that's what I've tried to do in the outline. I don't know if you spotted of the two characters we're going to look at. In a sense, the two words that you might put on their two tombstones. And let's just have a look at them uh, each in summary. As I said, God's people seem to be in such an irreversibly hopeless situation. What are they going to do? What will we do? How will we live if we're in that situation? Where do we put our hope? Well, let's look at these two characters and see what we can learn from them. Firstly, Jonathan. Let's look at him, who is loyal and faithful. I wonder if you turn to verse 2. You'll think, well, how are we going to spend time looking at Jonathan? He's only mentioned here. Look at it. The Philistines pressed hard against, after Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. So let's look at Jonathan, who's loyal and faithful. You see, the tragedy of this chapter in the book is, is usually associated with Saul, isn't it? Rightly so, in some ways. But let's not overlook Jonathan. He gets a very small mention here alongside his brothers, doesn't he, in verse 2. But I want us to consider, if we can just think back for a moment, 
of what we've seen throughout the rest of the book of Jonathan. He was central to so much of the story. Think back in, in chapter 14, he won this amazing battle against the Philistines. In chapters 18 to 20, it was really the central point of, his, of the narrative about him. Well, he, he kind of surrenders his kingship to David. Chapter 23, risks his life, if you remember, to, to flee his father and to go and find David, his loyal friend. And, and what does he do? Does he take him supplies? Does he? No, he goes and strengthens him in the Lord. He's a great man, a loyal son, a wonderful friend. Now, his obituary might read something like this, you know, in the Telegraph of the, of the Times, but a good man who needlessly died on Mount Gobo. It might seem so tragic in the news. But as the prince of Israel, which he was, as the son of Saul, a good friend to David, he's a hugely capable man. <laughs> Totally equipped to become the king. And he was in line to become the king if his father hadn't been so unfaithful and rejected God's word. But in so doing, God rejected both Saul and his dynasty. Anyone who followed, Jonathan had missed out. But where do you see Jonathan? I mean, is he kind of sulking in a corner somewhere of his father's palace or something like that? Is he kind of bemoaning the fact that he's missed out on the kingship? No. He's David's friend. He's Saul's son. And he's Israel's prince. And what we see him doing at the end is being faithful to God in the most difficult circumstances that God has placed him. He belonged in Mount Gilboa alongside his father. And he fell dead beside him, faithful to his call from God. Right to the bitter end. In such difficult circumstances. And some might look upon this and think, tragic. Poor old Jonathan, how foolish he was. And I hear this way too often. Oh, how politically naive he was. And he could have been actually with David, his his faithful friend, couldn't he? David's over there in Ziklag, having won a, a wonderful battle, being delivered there by God. He could have been there, resting up, enjoying some food. Safe with a future. He probably could have even carried on as the prince of Israel if David was king. But I want to ask you, is it tragic to live out your life faithful in the circumstances that God has placed you? Was Jonathan a fool? Was his death tragic? No. He's a picture of what it is to be faithful. A loyal servant. To the very last. But Jonathan stands, I think, very much against popular thinking of today. And sadly, it exists even in the church. The thing that it says, if you're outwardly impressive, politically savvy, that you will enjoy perhaps the material comforts. Even in the church, people would say, you know, that will lead you to good health and to prosperity and to satisfying relationships. Well, Jonathan stands against that. I quote a scholar here who says this. He was faithful in relationships, courageous in his faith, dynamic in his living and beneficial to God's people. But he ended up on Mount Gilboa with Philistine arrows piercing his lifeless body. The problem we have is that far too often we confuse faithful Christian living with the kind of the modern materialist dream. 
God promises us eternal life. He doesn't promise us pain-free life or easy life. He promises us eternal life. And too many people think that Christianity offers us rest from the struggles of this life, that, you know, that our children will be these idyllic bundles of joy that skip along down the road with us all the time, that our parents won't ever be annoying, or our bosses will never be the tyrants or, or anything. They'll be just, oh, lovely to see you at work every morning. Here's a, here's a bonus for today, never mind a year. No. Marriages will still struggle. Children will still be difficult at times. Parents and relationships, friendships will break your heart. The, the reality, my friends, is this. As I quoted before, you can be faithful in relationships. You can be courageous in your faith. You can be dynamic in your living, beneficial to God's people, and you can end up on your Mount Gilboa, dead and lifeless. But Jonathan was a faithful son and a servant of the Lord. So therefore, please, 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 do not confuse being faithful to God and what that looks like. It does not promise you an easy life, but it does promise you eternal life. When Jonathan was faced with such an irreversibly hopeless situation, he was loyal and he was faithful to the end. Let's look at Saul, shall we, Uh, very quickly now. Uh, verses 3 to 10, two words, what would be on his tombstone? I wonder if it was something like this, humiliated and defeated. It's interesting that the writer simply has a kind of a flurry of, of kind of words that he kind of brings together here. He's dead, he's dead, he's dead, he's died three times. He's mentioned here, just so we get the idea, the picture being painted as, though, as a failed and humiliated king. Wounded and fearing the overwhelming power. Why don't you just cast your eyes down to verse 4. You'll see there, you've got Saul. He asks his armour bearer to kill him. And many of you, if you remember back in Judges, you've got the idea what's happening here, haven't you? It mirrors the unanointed king, that is of Abimelech, who asks the same thing to happen, his armour bearers, to kill him. And they obliged. But here we see God's anointed and his armour bearer, probably because he is God's anointed, would not oblige, and therefore Saul fell on his own sword and died, defeated. In his, his mind, we see in the text, he, he's probably doing it for self-protection, isn't he? Because if the Philistines uh, uh, caught him, they would have probably tried to keep him alive and humiliated and drawn out the pain for even longer. I won't go into the graphic detail that history tells us, but it's horrible. We can be left in no doubt, though, can we, that Saul and Israel have been defeated. The kingdom of God looks like it's in a situation of irreversible hopelessness. But the real tragedy, the real failure, the real humiliation is not actually concerning Saul here, I don't think. But rather the idolatrous system that Saul and Israel had trusted. Do you remember, Ash pointed out, uh, back in chapter 8, we want a king, we want to be like the other nations. We want to trust that system rather than you, God, alone. They think they need this new system. The issue is defence. And they see the solution as getting this human king to be like everyone else. But now at the end of this book, what is God doing? He is crumbling the nation and its leaders by the means of an enemy. 
Look at verse 9. They've cut off Saul's head and fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. They've even proclaimed the news of his death throughout the Philistine temples. And you can imagine the glee as they did that. The Philistine, you know, BBC uh, headline would read, you know, Israel is, de- is defeated. Their king is defeated. Their God is defeated. Because that's what everyone would have done in those times. If you kill the king, if you, get, if you win a, a war, your God has lost. He is dead. The Philistine God Dagon would be, you know, kind of proclaimed as the great victor in this, in the temples. I guess this should be a sobering warning to us. When we put our ultimate hope in any other system, in any other person, any other anything, apart from God, the living God of the Bible. Because the warning here is that God can and he will use all circumstances to lovingly restore his people and to bring us back to trusting him And his word, his rule, his love. Oh, this can be painful. God's people had ignored him though. They doubted his loving rule. They wanted a king, but now the king was dead. And he's nailed to a city wall. And God's people here, as I said before, they they seem in such a hopelessly irreversible, uh, kind of horrible situation. In Jonathan, Jonathan, we see loyalty and faithfulness to the end as he trusted God. He put his hope in God in and through difficult circumstances. In and through Saul, we see a humiliated and defeated man and who's ignored and manipulated God's word again and again. He trusted himself. He put his hope in himself, in the system of him being king rather than God being king. And what are the consequences? Devastating. We're going to finish here with just the last three verses. And they offer us a glimmer of light. The glimmer is found in these people of Jabesh Gilead, who I've put on their tombstone, just to keep that theme running. They're brave and loyal. They're brave and loyal. Let me give you a bit of geography, if I can, to begin with. And uh, hopefully it will be helpful so you understand why these verses are here and why they're so important. Bashan was a, a few miles east of Mount Geboa, where Saul had been killed. And it's, remember this, it's west of the Jordan River. Okay? That's where he's been pinned on the wall. Jabesh Gilead was about 10 miles southeast of Mount Geboa. The important thing was it was on the east of the Jordan River. Now, the men of Jabesh Gilead, they hear what has happened to Saul. He's been dead, he's been pinned on this wall. So we see in verse 12, look, the valiant men of Jabesh Gilead, they, they journeyed through the night to take down the bodies of, of, uh, take down the body of Saul and, and take them back to Jabesh Gilead. And they burn him and they honour him in that way. And they bury his bones. Why though? It's an odd, isn't it? It's an odd little tale at the end of this book. Why is it here, do you think? I think it's here to show that They hadn't forgotten. And it's here to remind us that we must not forget. They had not forgotten. I told you to remember chapter 11, didn't I? I asked you to remember it because they remembered, the people of Jabesh Gilead, that there was a man called Nahash, an Ammonite, who was going to destroy them. And who promised to to mutilate their warriors. 
Jabesh Gilead remembered. They remembered that Saul heard of their plight. And what did they do? Saul, well, Saul in in chapter 11, he marched his men. He forced them to march overnight to free Jabesh Gilead, to rescue them. They hadn't forgotten Saul's finest hour. Saul's reign as a a king began with his deliverance of this town of Jabesh Gilead. And now it is ending in chapter 31 with Jabesh Gilead's deliverance of Saul's rotting body. The point is they hadn't forgotten. Saul had been unfaithful to God. They probably knew that. But it didn't change the fact that God had used Saul to deliver them from the hands of Nahash. They hadn't forgotten And this is probably the only tender glimmer of light in this whole very dark episode at the end of this book. But the point is, this is right. They do a good thing. They pay a debt of gratitude. They delivered a king who had delivered them. I wonder what what does that mean for us? Saul, uh, they probably didn't agree with him. They didn't respect him. They probably didn't even love him. But they owed him. They owed him a debt of gratitude and therefore they honoured him. I wonder, do we need to do that with some people? You know, you may have a struggling relationship with a colleague or or a boss at work. You may find a neighbour excruciating, a a family member just, you know, you, you find it difficult with them. Your marriage may not be the easiest, but is there something that you can thank them for, that you can honour them in? Do we have some debts of gratitude, some kindnesses that need to be acknowledged? When did you last thank your parents, for example, for who they are and what they've done and what they've sacrificed for you? You know, if you're married, when did you really spell out last for your spouse what they mean to you? The men of Jabesh Gilead cared enough to risk their lives to deliver a dead king who delivered them. They owed him and therefore they honoured him. They were there and they had not forgotten. Everyone agrees. This points to some other people. These men point us to some women who also had a dead king and there wasn't much that they could do but they were there and they were incredibly grateful. They stood and they watched their king, a far greater king than Saul. They stood and they watched him as he was crucified and they could not do anything. But they were there. They were there in gratitude. And they did what they could because they had not forgotten who he was. I don't know if you just turn to the next chapter. Chapter 2, sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 1. You'll see that David there, likewise, will not let us forget... He laments the death of uh, Saul and the people of Jabesh Gilead honour his death by burying him under a tamarisk tree in Gilead. Just flip back, it's an extraordinary last verse of chapter of 1 Samuel 31. They bury him under a tamarisk tree. Oh, do you know why that? It's the same tree in chapter 22 of where he would sit under a tree with his spear in his hand and lead his people with great strength and power. And he was the king. It's a picture, power, a powerful picture 
that now becomes a picture of pity as he is buried under that same tree. As we close, I want us to finish our time in 1 Samuel very thankful and very joyful because we do not put our hope in a Messiah, Christ, an anointed king who ignored God's word. We put our hope in a king, the Christ, the Messiah, who always trusted God's word, his father's word, who was loyal to the end like Jonathan. We do not put our hope in a, in a king who was humiliated and defeated and, and buried under a tree of shame. We put our hope in a king who, yes, hung on a tree, a cross of defeat and shame, but we put in our hope, we put our hope in a king who was raised, who was vindicated. And that makes all the difference, doesn't it? I want to ask you as we close. Do you know that king? That risen, glorified, exalted king. His name is Jesus. And he longs to have a relationship with you. For life now, it's not offering a pain-free life at all. But he is offering eternal life. And perfect relationship with God who made you and who sustains you. If you want to know more, please do come and speak to me or Ash. It would be our greatest joy and greatest privilege to show you the joy of knowing the great King, the Messiah Christ. His name is Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, it is such a sobering and sad picture as a man who had so much, who bolstered his own ego under a tamarisk tree, showing his great power and his great wealth and strength, but who ended up under the same tree, humiliated and defeated. Lord, we would be in an utterly hopeless situation if if that were us, and we were trusting in that king, but we're not. We trust in a king who hung on a tree, as 1 Peter 2 says, who hung on a cross, so that we might know you for eternity. Help us to trust him, to put our hope in him. Where our situations may seem at times difficult, hopeless, our circumstances may not be as we want, but we trust and hope in a king who has defeated death. Our biggest issue, our biggest problem in life is being solved. And it puts everything else into perspective. Help us trust the King, King Jesus, the true and the ultimate, the better Christ Messiah. Amen. Following a king, you 